Hi friends, this is Ian Khan and welcome to the Ian Khan Show. This is an Aftershock special episode and my guest today is Bill Diamond. Bill Diamond is the CEO and President of the SETI Institute. Now, the mission of the SETI Institute is to explore, understand and explain the origin and nature of life in the universe and the evolution of intelligence. Here's Bill. Bill, welcome to the Ian Khan Show and welcome to the Aftershock episodes. Now here we interview everybody who's contributed to the recent book, Aftershock. And Bill, you and I are contributors among 48 others, other futurists and, and thinkers of the world into helping understand what tomorrow looks like. Welcome to the show. How are you today? Very good, Ian. Great to be here. Nice to see you and uh, nice to talk to a fellow contributor. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Now, you have such an amazing background and um, your, your bio is so impressive. Your, your piece in the book is one of the most comprehensive and, and the longer ones. So I was really, really happy to go to it and read it. Tell us a little bit more about SETI. Tell us what you guys do. Sure. Well, SETI uh, is, is a research institute. It's called the SETI Institute in, in Mountain View, California. Uh, it is an acronym which stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. It's an organization that's been around for 35 years. Um, and our mission is essentially to explore, understand, and explain the nature and origins of life in the universe. So that's, that's what we do. And that means everything from understanding um, life as a process, what it is, uh, how it occurs, under what conditions, whether those conditions might exist elsewhere in our known universe, and if so, whether those conditions have led to life elsewhere, and if so, can we find it? So it's under a broad heading of astrobiology, which starts with basic things like, are there perhaps microbes on places like Mars, or are there more complex life forms on places like Enceladus or Europa, all the way out to, is there intelligent life uh, that we might be able to detect um, through its technology signatures, things like radio transmissions or, or other things that we might be able to detect from, from far away. So, so our work encompasses essentially everything from understanding life as a phenomenon to looking for it in the universe and determining whether or not we're alone uh, in the universe on, on our own little home planet. And uh, the Institute also engages in education programs most of our research, we have 110 uh, scientists at the Institute. Um, they come from about 23 different backgrounds. So they're data uh, analysts, they're planetary scientists, geologists, physicists, astronomers, astrophysicists, radio astronomers, and so on. Um, and so collectively, I like to think of them as, as artists, uh, where each artist sort of has a few pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. And what we're trying to do is assemble a picture of life in the universe. And so each scientist contributes their set of puzzle pieces to this, to this bigger picture. Uh, so that's what we do. Much of our work is funded by NASA uh, as it informs planetary science and, and space exploration uh, and basic science of interest to NASA. The work we do for uh, using radio telescopes to search for technology signatures beyond Earth, so-called SETI, is not funded by NASA. That's funded by private philanthropy um, we're hoping and, and part of a large community of academics and researchers um, advocating for NASA to get back in the business of funding SETI. I mean, the SETI Institute was actually born out of NASA back uh, in the early 80s. So 
that we hope to, to change, but uh, that's, that's a little bit about who we are and what we do. We, in the education side, we, we try to leverage what we believe is a broad public fascination with this topic and with space exploration generally uh, to get people excited about science. It's a wonderful space exploration and questions like are we alone in the universe provide a wonderful context in which to teach science and get kids and, and young people and old people alike interested in, in, in science and basic research and, uh, and you know exercising our curiosity. So we have programs with teachers, we have programs with organizations like the Girl Scouts, um, informal education programs, lecture series, a radio podcast, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. Amazing. That's, that's incredible. And I only have a thousand more questions for you. <laughs> there is so much that, um, there's so much curiosity and interest. It's always been there. And I think humankind is fascinated with uh, the, the idea of life outside of, you know, the planet Earth. And we're watching um, the Hollywood, you know, thrillers being created. I just watched one a few weeks ago. I was on a flight um, at Astra, uh, yeah. uh, which, which really... Uh, expanded my horizon on, okay, where's this going in the next 20, 30 years? So there's been so many different movies and so on. And I think SETI has been quoted and referred to, uh, to within them here and there. So, so the organization definitely is known as a breakthrough organization. What you guys do is really uh, outside of this planet, literally. Uh, and so my question, I have a few questions on how do we inspire people to be part of the reality of finding out life outside of the planet. That's part number one. Number two, how is technology playing a part in that? That's number two. And I would say number three is how do we measure the future? What, is, what should we do to, to really push the boundaries? Of course, funding is one, talent is one, but what, what is it that we need uh, in order to, to have space exploration more or the search for extraterrestrial intelligence more? And so if you're okay with that, let me ask, first of all, is I'm not going to say, do you believe there's life outside the planet? That would be so generic. But where are we today with respect to finding life out there? What's the current state of this, 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 this challenge and this puzzle? Sure. Well, I think um, the, the quest for um, life beyond Earth um, starts in our own backyard. There are basically three ways to search for life beyond Earth. And the first is what we call in situ. It means literally sending instruments and equipment to um, candidate places where we think life may exist still or may have existed in the past and making measurements. So that involves things like landers and rovers on places like Mars or future spacecraft going to places like Europa or Enceladus to perhaps fly through the, the plumes or even land on those uh, moons and drill through the ice where we think there could be um, life in the waters below the ice where we know there's geothermal activity. Yeah. So we have analogs like that on earth. So uh, that's one way. And the uh, uh, we're making progress. I mean, we have um, landers on Mars already. They're not really designed to look for life, but they are designed to look for some of the precursors of life and understand the composition of the surface of Mars, understand a little bit more about its atmosphere, etc. cetera. Um, the, the next upcoming mission called Mars 2020 is a NASA mission that was due to launch this year. Uh, it may get interrupted by, by COVID-19, but we'll see. But that uh, mission will put another curiosity-like rover, a very large sort of SUV 
uh, sized piece of equipment on the surface that is designed to look for life or signs of life. It's even designed to pick up and cache sample materials for subsequent return to Earth in a future mission. Um, so in situ, sending th technology out to uh, within our solar system is an interesting way to look for life. Uh, what's interesting about it is the parameter space is our solar system, which in the context of the universe is a very, very tiny spot. Um, and the number of candidates in our solar system that we think could potentially have or have held uh, life in the past is about five or six. And the budget for that, of course, is, is billions of dollars. Um, the next way to look for life is what we call remote sensing. And that's by using uh, new things like space telescopes, which can look at the atmospheres of distant planets, so-called exoplanets around other stars, and um, actually using a technology uh, called spectroscopy, analyze those atmospheres and look for and understand the composition of those atmospheres and whether those atmospheres might contain what we call biosignatures or biohints that would suggest the possibility that life has taken hold on, on some of these worlds. Um, the parameter space for that endeavor is probably, you can go out to maybe uh, 20 to 30 light years and, and the number of, of planets that we believe we can look at with instruments like the James Webb Space Telescope, which we hope to launch next year, uh, is again, maybe a half a dozen or so. And the budget of course is billions. The third way to look for life is to look for uh, signs of technology as a proxy for life and intelligence. And you do that by using radio telescopes, possibly even optical telescopes. Um, and in, in that case, you, you can look at, at tremendously distant stars and planetary systems. Um, so the parameter space is our galaxy at the very least and potentially beyond. Our galaxy is about 100,000 light years across and contains probably about 300 billion stars wow. and planets. And uh, so uh, the, the, and the, the candidate pool within that of planets we believe that, could, that are Earth-like planets and the so-called habitable zone of their star where liquid water can be sustained and where life could potentially uh, take hold is in the tens of billions. So it's a huge parameter space. It's a large candidate space. And the federal budget for investigating that is currently zero. So we think the, the paradigm is a little upside down in terms of return on investment. But, but you know, SETI endeavors, which are still now privately funded, are investigating that parameter space. But you asked really about, you know, what do we know and what progress has been made? Um, and I would say probably the most profound new piece of knowledge that has been gained in the last decade or so is just the fact that we now understand the ubiquity of planets. Planets are everywhere. What I love to say to people is, you know, go out on the starriest clear night you can, uh, you can come across and look up into the sky. And what you will see is if on a very clear night, as many as maybe 10,000 points of light. And these are mostly stars, some cases they're galaxies, etc. What we now know that we didn't know 10 years ago is that every one of those statistically has at least one and probably more than one planet around it. We also know, and this was, this was a revelation that came from the Kepler Space Telescope mission. Um, and the Institute played a huge role in supporting that NASA mission, which was um, started here at NASA Ames. Um, and what we also know as a result of Kepler is we know the, the, the basic nature of those planets. We can tell their size, their orbital distance from their star, 
which also means we can determine whether they are in that habitable zone. So if they're small and rocky and earth-like and in the habitable zone, that makes them an interesting candidate. Mm. And you know, in, in terms of percentages, the Kepler mission taught us that probably uh, 20 odd percent of, of planets are these sort of rocky earth-like planets in the habitable zone. So again, that's why we now know that the, the number of candidate planets for life in our galaxy alone is in the tens of billions. Yeah, wow. So that's, that's a huge advance in our knowledge. That doesn't take us closer necessarily to answering the question, is there life beyond Earth? Yeah. But what it certainly suggests, at least to me, and I think many of my colleagues, is the statistical probability that life does not exist anywhere else in the universe is probably zero. So I think in terms of, you know, uh, what progress we're making, we, we, we now just know that much more. We know that planets are everywhere. We know that, um, uh, you know, that Earth-like habitable zone planets are very numerous. Um, And we're developing new tools and technologies to look for signs of life and to understand things like, biosignatures and atmospheres or how to look for life extinct or extant on Mars. So technologies are developing and improving. Um, We still don't know what life is. Interesting. If you, if you Google it, (laughs) you know, you'll, you'll under come to a quick understanding that there's not a really good working definition of what life is, but we know a lot about what life does and it's more about what life does that allows us to be able to, to look for it because what it does is unique and separate from kind of what we call non-living things and, and therefore we can make that distinction. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. No, that really, um, uh, it's, it's really fascinating how, how you see things and how from your perspective, what is out there. And so it's really a great learning experience. And I, I know our audiences are going to love this. I, I want to ask you about also about aftershock. So Toffler, Alan Toffler wrote his book, Future Shock, 50 years ago. And 50 years forward, we have aftershock here where, you know, you've put in a nice uh, article um, talking about, you know, what Toffler wrote, why did he write? And I was really um, intrigued by one of the things that you wrote in an I'll quote. I'll quote you right here. It says, so I began to ask, did he get it wrong? It was like, did Toffler get all of this wrong? Uh, and then you describe what you really meant by it. But what, and you, you said that you were 14 years old when, uh, when Toffler sounded the alarm on the implications. Tell us how was it living back in the era when, when you were growing up um, and uh, futurism at that, in, on, in that era of time wasn't as developed maybe as it is right now. Probably we were still, technology wasn't as forward as it is right now. Give us an insight on how you interacted with this idea of the future um, and why you thought that Toffler could have been wrong. Yeah. So uh, it's interesting. Well, um, you know, as you, as you probably discover further on in, in my, my kind of assessment, if you will, I, I think he got so many things right. And I think his, his uh, future shock was, was so pressing in so many ways. And as I think I say elsewhere in that essay, you know, it reads as though it was written like last week, not 50 years ago in many cases. What, what I found interesting, however, was that, uh, or, or somewhat ironic, is the world he described 50 years ago. And he mentions, you know, a lot of companies and organizations and, and phenomena. And I'm thinking, gee, that's interesting. You know, here we are 50 years later, 
And so many of those organizations and institutions, academic and corporate and, and uh, government, et cetera, uh, are with us today. And so many of the things that he talked about as being potentially problematic 50 years ago are still with us today. Um, and yet 50 years prior, you know, in 1920, uh, I think the world really did look very different. And most of the organizations, institutions, and things that he references did not exist at that time. Yeah, yeah. So I'm thinking, here we are 50 years on, and so much is, is similar to what he described, perhaps just more accelerated. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so that's when I thought, well, gee, was, you know, was he right about this? I think that he was uh, absolutely right in sounding the alarm of, you know, are, are humans able to adapt and adjust to the increasingly rapid pace of change? So it's, it's an acceleration. It's an exponential curve. It's not just, you know, um, change is, is ongoing, but the pace of change is ongoing and accelerating. And can we cope with this emotionally and as a society? Um, and I, I looked at it and I, I think, well, gee, it, you know, we 50 years on, we, we haven't come apart at the seams. We haven't gone collectively insane. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we do have challenges and we do have both individuals and, and, and situations that could suggest, yeah, there's, there's cracks in the foundation yeah. of society that, uh, that perhaps he, he was alluding, alluding to. But um, uh, it, it seemed that, that we have somehow still adapted to this world he described. And, and maybe it speaks to the adaptability of the human species to changing phenomena that, that we should give credit to um, that might explain why we haven't gone collectively off the rails in spite of his, I think, wise and, and, uh, and, and understandable warnings at the time. Uh, what I then went on to observe was I felt that, that you know, he was, for good reasons, uh, focused on kind of, I think, the human psyche and, and, and impacts on society of, of the pace of change. And um, what wasn't explored in his book by design, because that wasn't its purpose, but for me, what wasn't explored in his book is what are the other implications of the onset of technology and rapid technological change that uh, are maybe more physical in nature, i.e. impact on our planet, um, impact on our environment, that, uh, that you know, are, are equally or potentially even more serious than the impact on our psyche of, of technological change and advancement. So, and, and uh, as I think I kind of referred to in the book, you know, at, at the Institute, we, we sort of think on a planetary scale. So, you know, I think of, of the earth as a system. We speak uh, and, and talk at length between life and environment. I mean, the earth and its environment today was created by a massive change in biology early on. Yep. I mean, Earth was formed, it didn't have oxygen in its atmosphere. Yep. It was a great oxygenation event three something billion years ago yep. that created that. So life and, and biology impact environment and habitability and vice versa. And uh, so anyway, I was kind of looking at, at, at future shock and now aftershock through the lens of, of, of that notion of the other aspects of, um, of technology and technological change. Amazing. I, I, I know we're short on time and I just have another a few minutes with you. I want to ask you uh, about, uh, it's, it's, more like a, it's more like a personal question, but, uh, not really, but as a scientist, I mean, and as somebody who works in 
um, in such a groundbreaking or a breakthrough industry yourself. How do you look at the fragility of life? Because here we are dealing with a virus situation in 2019, COVID-19, uh, in 2020 with COVID-19. And we're just, humanity is just so fragile. You just mentioned three billion years. So three billion years ago, the planet was formed and oxygenation happened. And, you know, sometimes when, when, you de when you're dealing with problems, it's nice to zoom out 20,000 feet high up in the sky and look at the world and, and say, hey, I'm such a small little cogwheel in this big, big, big universe. So my question more is, how do we overcome the mindset as people when, we're, when we have challenges, when we're, uh, how, how can we have in perspective that, hey, the earth was formed three billion years ago. There's an entire solar system out there with trillions of different bodies floating around and I can overcome my challenges and my problems if I can. I just want you to help us understand these two contrasts. How, how do you do that? Yeah. Well, so first of all, I, I think it's, you know, this interesting no notion about the fragility of life. One of the things I think we've learned in our research is how actually robust life is and how incredible it is. There's a whole branch, branch of uh, our research that, that's called extremophiles research or the study of life in extreme environments. And, you know, this is another thing that informs the search for life beyond earth and, and also gives further um, support to the notion that we're not alone is that, you know, we find life in places that for humans would be absolutely inhospitable on earth, but we still find life existing. Now it's not complex, intelligent life, but it's nevertheless, it's biology. And so, uh, and you know, we, we, we understand, we find life in the middle of rocks. We find life in, you know, the middle of, of high temperature pools of, of, you know, boiling water and things of this nature. So, Life exists in, in environments that, that are hard for us to imagine, which suggests that life itself may not be so fragile, but the human condition and human existence, um, I don't know if it's fragile, it's certainly being tested, mm -hmm. uh, but it's also you know, fairly recent. I mean, it, it's in the blink of an eye in cosmic time, if we think, as you mentioned, about the age of the earth at, at 4.2 billion years, humankind, I mean, recorded human history goes back 500,000 years. Early pre-humans go back a couple of million years, but even that is is a very very tiny fraction of the Earth's existence. Um, I like to think of of life as continuing to evolve, and that there is hopefully a an evolutionary future for for humankind that is very positive and and much more advanced than we are now, perhaps in ways we can't even imagine. Um, uh, but you know, I, I what I do see is that, uh, and and this is another thing that in, informs our our research is how long do technological civilizations remain detectable and remain technological and, and, and thrive and survive. Mm -hmm. And I think there's this interesting situation where technology does so much to enhance and improve uh, our life and the human condition. And at the same time, it throws uh, very, very serious challenges, um, which, you know, you, you look at the way these two things interact, the good and the bad, if you will, uh, I think if uh, we're going to survive uh, in the long term uh, for the next 100,000 or million years or more, that we're going to have to overcome some of the technological challenges imposed by our evolution. Once you harness the atom, once you harness pathogens and biology, you not only create interesting new technologies, you create um, imposing new threats. So to the extent that we can control technology 
um, and uh, and you know leverage its its benefits while mitigating its risk. But uh, but so yeah, technological civilizations and and highly intelligent civilizations may be fragile. I think life itself is robust. Um, and when we talk in the context of things like the environment, I often say to people, don't worry about the planet. It's not about the planet. The planet's going to be fine with or without us. Yeah. It's going to go on and life will go on on this planet until the sun burns out. Yeah. Uh, the question is, what's our place here? And can we um, uh, you know, be good inhabitants of, of this planet and, and survive in the long term? I love it. Thank you. That's really uh, inspirational and it helps uh, just put a different perspective on how we look at life. Uh, tell us a little bit more about where can our viewers and people who are watching this video find more about SETI, find more about your work, uh, and uh, perhaps what's your guidance or direction uh, for younger learners, for younger generation, generations to be interested in space and space exploration? What can they do uh, as next steps? Sure. Well, one thing they can do is, is, is get involved and get excited. And, and this is why, um, you know, the, the whole field of space exploration and asking these big philosophical and scientific questions like, are we alone in the universe are so compelling. And why, you know, you'll, you'll talk to an, an old veteran of NASA and NASA is you know, all about rockets and spacecraft. And they'll say to us things like, you know, every time I go to a school and I talk to the kids, and I'm talking about NASA and our work, all they want to talk about is aliens. <laughs> and all they want to talk about is, you know, is there life beyond Earth? So, you know, I, th I think uh, folks at NASA and elsewhere realize the compelling nature of this question. Uh, back to your first part, I mean, people can learn more about the SETI Institute at our website, which is just SETI.org, S-E-T-I.org. We're a nonprofit research and education institution. We have a radio program and podcast called Big Picture Science, which is another wonderful way for for people to learn uh, not just about our science, but that program covers science broadly. And it's, it's really, I have to say, they, they do a wonderful job in it. And we have um, a monthly lecture series called SETI Talks. And we have a channel on YouTube called SETI Talks. And people can go and, and, and uh, peruse a vast array of, of lectures on everything from you know, advanced propulsion technologies to exoplanets to dark matter and dark energy. But um, back to your, your other question about inspiration and connection. Um, again, I think that one of the problems with science education as it is done today is science is taught in the abstract and it's taught without context. You know, it bounces in different contexts. And it's also taught as though the disciplines are, are silos and right up through graduate education. Um, so we have physics and chemistry and biology as though these are separate um, phenomena of their own. Life isn't that way. <laughs> the planet isn't that way. Nature isn't that way. We organize it for good reasons because it makes it easier to digest. But what, what is really fascinating about questions like, are we alone in the universe? You need all of these sciences working together. And what we really are all about is connecting the dots between physics and chemistry and biology and looking at where they connect and interact because that's where the interesting stuff happens. But what, what I think is, is special about space exploration and questions like, are we alone? They provide that context that I think is otherwise missing. Mm. I mean, imagine a, you know, a third grade teacher who instead of you know, talking abstractly about something in chemistry or physics, starts talking about it in the context of looking for life beyond earth. And how do you do that? And where do you start? And what do you need to know? 
what kind of tools do you need? And uh, you probably remember from your, your early science courses about learning the periodic table of the elements, right? And they handed you this table with all these funny boxes and symbols yep. and numbers in it and told you how to read it, right? Um, and you're like, yeah, that's interesting, or maybe not. Yeah. But, uh, you know, if that same teacher, the first time you were exposed to the periodic table said, today, we're going to talk about the elements. Did you know that all of the elements are born in the stars? That's how they come to be, you know? And, and if I heard somebody say that to me, I'd say, well, you know, I'm, I'm actually going to pay attention to this. It sounds kind of interesting. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I challenge our education institutions more than, than our, our children and our students to get more creative about, um, about building inspiration into curriculum and building, putting context into curriculum that really leverages our, our curiosity. I think our curiosity is something that unites us as a species and makes us uniquely human. <laughs> uh, and, and so why not drive and, and inspire that? Um, so that would be, uh, you know, and, and, and if we do that, we don't have to prescribe the how-to for kids. They'll just get excited and they'll just go after it. A very quick side note on that. We, we have a program with the Girl Scouts USA where we developed a series of badges for STEM education for the Girl Scouts, all based on space science and exploration, starting from, you know, age five, all the way up to the age 18, six different levels. So six different uh, levels of complexity and, and difficulty. The first three badges for the youngest girls, daisies, brownies, and juniors came out in August of, of 2018. In August of 2019, we learned that with that first year of that first set of badges, 68,000 girls took them on and completed wow. the projects. Wow. And, um, you know, so in, in the next three badges uh, for the older girls came out last year in August. So we're hoping to see similar numbers for that. I mean, if we're inspiring 100,000 or more girls every year um, through this kind of science, I think that's real impact. Yes. And it demonstrates what can be done um, through things like space exploration and, and asking the big questions to inspire young people. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Bill. Uh, I really appreciate your time uh, and what you do uh, as an organization. Uh, check out uh, Aftershock, folks. This is available on Amazon. Uh, I'm sure, I'm not sure how much it costs. It's a few dollars, but it's definitely Bill's article is in there and there's tons of content in there really um, that you can uh, look at and learn from. Bill, thank you so much for your time and uh, we'll continue following your work uh, in SETI. Thank you so much. Hey friend, this is Ian Khan. If you liked what you saw on my video, then please subscribe to my YouTube channel and be inspired every single day with innovative content that keeps you fresh, updated, and ready for the future. For more information, also visit my website at iankhan.com.